Welcome to the Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. And I'm Father Creighton McElveen. And today we are joined by recurring guest of the podcast now, uh, Archbishop Mark Haverland of the Anglican Catholic Church. Bishop Haverland, it's good to see you. Thank you. Good to be seen. Better seen than viewed. That's right. Absolutely. And I believe, I, I Father Creighton, remind me, Dr. Junius Johnson and Dr. Scott Harrower are the others we've had on a lot on this podcast. But was it, have we had them both on three times or have are they in the, the fourth? Oh, I think they might be three or four. I think maybe four. I know, I, I know Father. Three. I think they might be three because, and that, that means that Archbishop Haverland is also in the, in the elite group of guests. We need to get him a jacket. He gets, he gets his jacket sent yeah. to him. Um, now that he's joined us three times, uh, I think oh, Father true. Father Hans Borsma is close too. Yes, that's true. Bishop Chad, Archbishop Chad. Yes, he's also been on. I think three times. Yes, but probably more than that. He might be the most. So, but we'll have to get you on again soon so that you can you can take the the place of uh, precedence there. Oh no! Don't get me in trouble. <laughs> Come, come higher, friend. <laughs> well, today we are very excited to have you on. We're going to revisit uh, something we did in the last season, which was the Sacramentalist Ghost Scripture, scripture Scriptural. In the last season, we did an episode on Tobit. And so this year we are back going scriptural again, this time going to the book of Ruth. Um, and so we're very excited to do that with you, Archbishop. Uh, you were explaining before we started recording, Archbishop, what made you kind of take the book of Ruth, maybe revisit it, um, Robert Alter. Could you could you maybe elaborate on that a little bit more? Sure. Uh, I was told many years ago that um, if you don't keep reading as a, as a priest, you run out of things to say after about 10 years. And um, I was like many clergy, of, at least of my generation, trained in historical, critical uh, methods of biblical interpretation and only gradually found them uh, almost literally useless, um, not necessarily false or uninteresting, but just a very little use, particularly in parish ministry. And uh, Arch, the late Archbishop John Cahoon um, helped me uh, find other ways. He, he was a very gifted teacher of, of scripture. But uh, one of an, another way in which I, I began to encounter new ways to look at scripture, or helpful ways, was through the work of Robert Alter, who wrote in the early 80s uh, a book called The Art of Biblical Narrative. And um, one of his um, very fruitful ideas, uh, I think, is what he calls the biblical, and by, by biblical, of course, he means the uh, Hebrew Bible, um, the biblical type scene. Uh, the type scene is, is a, a, a typical unfolding of a story that uh, we might or might not recognize because um, we only have the Hebrew Bible of ancient uh, Hebrew literature um, and storytelling, um, he, he likens it to uh, westerns. Uh, suppose you found 500 years from now a, a, a video archive that had three westerns and a half of one and a quarter of another. Um, well, we take we take all of the tropes and and uh, themes and typical things of westerns for granted, um, but suppose you didn't have many examples you'd have to sort of piece out try to figure out what the guy in the black hat means and the evil banker and the widow with the uh, farm in danger and the comic sidekick and the whore with the heart of gold and all that um anyway so one of the type scenes he thinks is present uh is the betrothal type scene and he said, we have, we have two very full examples of that uh, in Genesis. One, uh, Jacob uh, going and finding a, uh, a 
bride for himself. But before that, Isaac uh, having a, a surrogate or Abraham having a surrogate to find a bride for Isaac. And we find typical things. The hero of Israel goes to a foreign country. He comes upon um, his future bride. They're usually young women, Na'ara, uh, present. There's often a well. Somebody draws water. There's a recognition of relationship. There's usually running. Somebody runs to report to somebody else. There's uh, often um, then a uh, meal and a betrothal. Um, now, in addition to the two very full versions of that in Genesis, there are a number of partial versions, Alter argues. Uh, one is Moses uh, going to Midian and uh, encountering Zipporah. Um, another is um, interrupted, and that's Saul going in search of the lost donkeys. And as he comes to um, Samuel's city, encounters young women coming down, I think, to draw water. But the story gets sidetracked, and he goes off in search of Samuel. Uh, Samson um, is uh, a partial example. But Ruth, he argues, is a rather full example in which the, the uh, typical elements of the story, some of them are, are turned 180 degrees uh, instead of a hero of Israel going to a foreign, lang uh, foreign land and meeting a husband, a foreign woman comes to Israel, not just to Israel, but to Bethlehem, and encounters her uh, future husband. But many of the same elements in the type, many of the elements of the typical version of the type scene are there. There are young women, there's drawing of water, there's a recognition of kinship. Uh, and of course, in due course, there is a, uh, a betrothal and, and marriage. So uh, that, that started me reading Ruth as something other than just a sort of pleasant story, biblical story. Um, there, there were older uh, pre-modern commentators that said, Ruth, the only reason Ruth was preserved in the canon was because it kept, uh, it, it had a bit of the genealogy of Jesus, uh, the background of, of Jesus' genealogy. And otherwise, there was no real good reason for it to be there. Well, it, not many later commentators would agree with that, but, but in fact, there's a whole lot in Ruth. Um, so that, that started my interest in Ruth. And then um, uh, and I think the reason I mentioned Ruth when last uh, we spoke, uh, or no, it was, it was on the, after hearing your Tobit conversation, um, I uh, find an awful lot of wonderful typology in Ruth. And uh, that opens up a whole several other avenues of, of approach and interest. Um, uh, Eucharistic typology, um, and then um, um, ecclesial Christological typology. Uh, finally, I think that the way in which Ruth handles the law, uh, in particular the Leverate law about marrying uh, the, the male relative marrying his deceased relative's wife to raise up children in the deceased relative. That, that's the engine that powers the whole story of Ruth. So it's central to Ruth, but it's also completely irrelevant to Ruth. Um, at, at the end of the story, you realize you don't even know who Ruth's husband which of the two brothers was her husband for three and a half chapters of the book. Whereas the whole point of, this, of the Leverate Law is to preserve the memory of the deceased male. And, uh, and then when the genealogy at the end of the book is given, uh, Ruth's son is not given as the son of Malon, which is what the Leverate Law would, would have had done, but rather Boaz's son. So the, the Leverate Law powers the book and then is completely and utterly cast aside. And uh, that, I think, 
then becomes an interesting uh, uh, example for the way Christians see the law, or Paul, and, and then later Christians see the law both as central and vital and of perennial importance and significance, so as, in a sense, completely surpassed. So uh, several, several reasons for interest in, in Ruth, uh, starting with that that um, uh, idea from Robert Altman. I don't want to go too out of order, but the point that you just made about the ending of the book ties into a question that I did have upon rereading the book of Ruth. I love the book of Ruth. Um, recently did a study on the Deuteronomistic history at my parish, and we spent a good chunk of time in Ruth, um, partly because it was a nice reprieve from the depressing books that surround it but um at the end of the book not only is he is the son obed listed at, in the genealogy of david as the son of boaz but also when he's born and the midwife takes the baby she says that a son has been born to naomi which i think is really interesting um and that kind of brings a question that i had about 220 where Naomi, when she finds out that Ruth has connected with Boaz, says, Blessed be he by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. Um, and I think on the surface level, I, I, I read that initially, and I've always probably read that as maybe a reference to the dead husband. That God's been faithful to him because he's given a way for the name to continue. But in light of the ending of the book and what you just said, I was wondering if maybe we should read the dead there as Naomi and not the husband who's died. Yeah. Well, on, on the first point about um, Naomi, um, that I think you might see as part of this um, turning of the type scene on the axis of sex so that um, the... The son is the son of Naomi, um, a grandson, of course, um, of Naomi in, in a sense, and also of, of Ruth. And then that would connect with, you know, blessed, is, they, the women say to Naomi, blessed are you because of Ruth more than, you know, a bunch of sons. She's better than a bunch of sons would be. So uh, there is a, um, there's a slight, subversion of of uh um maybe of, of uh, surface patriarchal ideas uh in both of those respects and let's face it ruth also is a little bit especially if we put it in its uh, uh septuagint context which is where it occurs in the christian bible between uh, judges and first samuel it's also a little bit subversive of the uh, exclusive um, uh, nationalism, if you will, maybe an anachronistic term, but the um, the exclusion from Israel of non non um, worshippers of of um, of God of, of Jehovah, and um, Ruth is much more open. Um, here you have the the uh, foreigner Ruth becoming an ancestress of of uh, Israel's greatest hero, um, or one of Israel's greatest heroes. So um, I think the um, the the turning of the story to soften certain things uh, in Israel's religion. Um, uh, seems sensible to me um and then the uh the the, the verse uh was a 20, 220 um that that sounds a theme of of um, faithfulness or covenantal fidelity I said which turns up again and again in the book uh fidelity to um the ideas aren't exclusive fidelity to the dead um Fidelity to the mother-in-law, uh, fidelity of the mother-in-law to the daughter-in-law, um, 
fidelity to uh, God, uh, Boaz's fidelity to the to the Leverate law, uh, his fidelity to a good woman um, who is faithful and praised by her, There's all sorts of um, fidelity is present in the book and praised. And uh, I don't know that we need to uh, say it's it's um, it's Ruth, or rather it's Naomi rather than um, than Malam. Um, it's it's probably both. The reality is Malam gets he's out of the picture pretty quickly, and then he's not really remembered. Um, um, just at the very end, we learn that in fact he was the, the first husband of Ruth, but. Uh, doesn't seem to matter much to anybody. The uh, the subversion of nationalism of Israel, sort of uh, narrow nationalism, is very interesting because the Book of Judges has just ended with the slaughtering of the of the um, Levite's concubine and the, her, having her mailed to the twelve tribes, and then you have the the whole incident with the Benjaminites. And so the book ends on such a dour note. Everyone did with what was right in his own eyes. And then Ruth opens kind of on a depressing note in that the family goes out of Israel into Moab, which was non-land of Gentiles. They intermarry, which they weren't supposed to do. Um, so you do get a very kind of depressing. But it, it kind of reminds me of like an Amos, you know, the prophet's. The prophet is very critical of the nations, but then he's even more critical of Israel. And and you get this also in Matthew, you know, that at the beginning of the book, the, everything is kind of open to the Jews. Jesus's ministry is specifically to the people of Israel. And then over the course of the book, as as the Pharisees and the scribes and, and the people reject Jesus, that door is closed and then open to the Gentiles. And so then when it's the centurion, it's greater, greater faith I have not seen in all of Israel. So it's almost a way of shaming them and calling them to live out their special calling. Yeah, and and uh, of course they, they go to Moab because of a famine, and um, there's another uh, young man who encounters famine. Uh, there's another young person, which is the prodigal son. Um, so famine can be literally famine, but also it can be a, uh, if we're going to start, uh, which I will, a typological interpretation, then um, we're if we're talking about bread, then we're talking about the Eucharist. And um, we, uh, Malan, Chilean, Naomi, and her husband leave Israel. They leave Bethlehem, which is the house of bread, because of a famine. And they go to Moab, where there is plenty, but then death. And then they come back to the house of bread. And if you if you read if you read the book carefully, you will encounter lots and lots of grain and lots and lots of harvests. And uh, they they punctuate the book. And Ruth's gathering of grain is uh, central to the story. Boaz's provision of grain and therefore bread to uh, Ruth and by extension to Naomi um, is a sign of his uh, goodness and his uh, desirability as a spouse for uh, Ruth. So uh, all of this, I think, is um, is is uh, Eucharistic um, and will fit in very, very well with um, with uh, a typological interpretation. Um, uh, I, I'm now I'm, I'm wandering a little bit from, from your question. Um, so feel free to bring me back now. No, I no, I think you're going in the right direction because in 2.14 at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. Yeah, yeah there, there you go. Which is which is also interesting because you know it's in the in the Gospels when Jesus offers that invitation it's to Judas, but you already kind of have a Judas character, or a Judas type already because when Orpa leaves she kisses Naomi, which I thought was oh. interesting. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think it's I think it's interesting too when you look at the sort of bread and famine sort of typology here. If you sort of allegorize famine to mean sort of a dearth of faith, maybe, as mm-hmm. it relates to say the prodigal son, you can see that the story of Ruth set within the context of Judges, which is a perennially unfaithful, you know, chosen people being sort of regulated by a temporary judge to try to get things back on track and they just go back and do their own thing and eventually it culminates in them doing what is right in their own eyes israel itself right the 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 collection of peoples that nation is unfaithful and so there's this sense of famine within the people of israel a a, a crisis of faith belief and fidelity and if you look at other examples in the Old Testament, say Moses, for instance, when Moses goes into the wilderness, they he encounters the Midianites who are faithful. He, enco- he encounters sort of when, when Israel's being unfaithful, God is pretty quick to sort of bring a particular character to somewhere that is faithful. And, you know, Ruth and Naomi... Um, are sort of this this wonderful example of faithfulness, then they come back. And when they come back to Israel, their return sort of heralds a, a beginning of faithfulness in Bethlehem. And that's when you start getting these harvest references. Um, yeah. you, she, yeah. she returns and immediately to make money, goes out into the field to thresh, to bring in the harvest, to bring in the grain. To, to glean, to glean. Yeah, um, so if you kind of jump to the um, to applying the typology, if if um, Boaz Boaz is the Christ figure and and Ruth is the church, um, the the field where Ruth gleans is the property of Boaz. Uh, the church gleans souls and finds gracious bread in Christ's field. Boaz greets the people who are the reapers with um, the salutation we get in the liturgy, right? Again and again, the Lord be with you. Uh, Ruth is told only to abide in the fi- abide only in the field of Boaz. So there's avoid that infidelity of all that we kept pop- popping up in the judges, uh, uh, as you noted. Um, the field of Boaz is where Ruth finds plenty of grain, thanks to Boaz's generosity. Why have I found grace in thine eyes, she says. Um, so Ruth is the church, and the church is to remain close to Boaz Christ until the end of the harvest. And of course, the harvest in the New Testament uh, is uh, the final judgment, and the Perusia, and the the reapers or the angels uh, in the New Testament. And yes, as the Ruth has a meal of bread and vinegar, which is a kind of wine, and she did eat and was sufficed. Um, so everything about the meal suggests the Eucharist um, with its great uh, plentitude of, um, of food. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just... It's it's lovely. Uh, Can I uh, also was just this just came to my mind um, as relates to our previous episode, the Sacramentalist Go Scriptural Tobit edition. We talked about some very similar themes in the book of Tobit because you have a kinsman redeemer who goes out to search for a wife who is related to him. And once they are betrothed and once the the demon has been sort of banished uh, from his kinsmen. Uh, they have this massive wedding feast, right? It culminates in this Eucharistic image uh, of feasting and of celebrating the fact that the kinsman has come to redeem the kinswoman. And it's really interesting that you see that so clearly in Ruth that it's this progress of faithfulness uh, leading to service 
in the field and it results in uh, being fed and satisfied and it stands as such a sharp contrast to what's going on in the world around it because at the same time you have um, Tobit going on right that he's right outside of Nineveh and you you have a very clear example of unfaithfulness and uh, apostasy and all sorts of back and forth with with Jonah and what's going on in that particular story. And that's so sharply contrasted to this group of faithful people that God has identified and called and uh, sort of given grace to, to, to fulfill this faithfulness. But they're sort of outsiders, like Tobit and his family are exiled away from their homeland. They're, they're not your typical sort of heroic examples. Uh, but that's exactly the person uh, or group of people that God uses. Um, and, and you see, I mean, this happens time and again, right? This is this is what happens with uh, jail. This is what happens with uh, so many examples. In a sense, like Our Lady is a woman. She's sort of not particularly, um, you wouldn't think that she was going to be this heroic example her family didn't have the sort of cultural cachet and presence that others did they you know they're not the ruling royal family even though they're descendant of david um but somehow that's that's the path the avenue that god works the economy of salvation through yeah things happen in in a um prophesied and in a sense after the fact uh, expected way, but also in a way that completely baffles and surprises people uh, as it's happening. So, um, yeah, as Jesus is fulfills all the prophecies and is not recognized by by uh, those who ought to. And I, I was also thinking about Obed and mentioning that he's the son of Naomi. And you're sort of uh, there's another sort of typology at play here with the son of promise and while from the kind of grand scriptural narrative we can clearly see that the son of promise is christ but you have these sort of smaller sons of promise coming along setting this typology up setting up what is you know foreshadowing and here's the pattern this is what you need to be looking for and it's usually faithfulness leading to a particular son and in the case of Naomi, yes, we talk about Ruth's faithfulness, and we, you know she's very much like kind of the the star of this story. But there's also a sense in which that faithfulness is a product of her relationship to Naomi, and so there's this participatory faithfulness going on. There's this sort of secondary causation that's happening as she is around Naomi, as she submits and serves Naomi, as she stays faithful to Naomi, there is a son that is born that eventually is going to lead to Jesse, which will eventually lead to David, which will eventually lead to our Lord, which I think is really interesting. This is in many ways the extension of the Abrahamic covenant, right? Yeah. Those who bless you will be blessed. Uh, Ruth, by her faithfulness, blesses Naomi and is blessed as a result. And and at near the beginning, after after all the deaths, she says, "Do not call me Naomi, pleasant, but call me Mara, bitter." So the, the bitterness is reversed um, through the course of love. Um, that that's really what what turns um, Naomi's bitterness and loss into into the fruitfulness. So that Obed becomes the sign of the reversal um, of that initial catastrophe, and just as the son, the other son of the woman, um, becomes the the uh, the reverser of the initial bitterness and disaster and loss and death uh, in Genesis. So it's yeah, it's it's the whole story, um, written in another, in another way, uh, 
it's another version of, of, of the story, which is why I think, again, the, tr the, the way in which the Leverett law, the Leverett law is, is handled in the book is also paradigmatic and typical uh, and, and becomes a, an example of the whole um, relationship of Old and New Testament, uh, church and synagogue, um, the uh, New Testament and the old law. Um, so it, it, everything in scripture is about everything in scripture. Right. Well, too, like, you know, picking up the fact that Naomi says, call me bitter, right? Call me Mara. That we, if if listeners or anybody is familiar, if you've ever been to a service of Stations of the Cross, you will identify that that passage is is read. If you if you use the Alfonso Liguri uh, Stations, it's a it's a key feature there um, because that's there's a sort of Marian image and typology going on as well. That you know. All, all generations, everybody will refer to Our Lady as blessed. Mm -hmm. But she's also, you know, this, you know, kind of example of, of co-suffering with Christ. That she really experiences... Mater Dolorosa. Mater Dolorosa. Exactly. She experiences this bitterness. She tastes that bitterness. Um, you know, Simeon's prophecy of a sword piercing her heart also. She, she is kind of you know, the, the, the paradigmatic example of, of what we're looking at with Naomi. Um, and you know, that, that blessing comes, the reason she is blessed is that she participates in that faithfulness, right? It kind of comes back to her. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's a really interesting, you know, when you, when you look at the kind of sons of promise kind of images, there's, there's a, there's a mother who is, part of that equation, um, setting up that typology. And you see these examples where she is the she is blessed and she experiences this sort of blessedness, but there's also some some level of suffering associated with it as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. I was reminded when we were reading this again of of um the story in Exodus where they go to the the waters that are bitter, which is and they call the place Mara. And then they cast the tree in it and it becomes sweet. And, you know, Origen's reading of that is about salvation history itself, that, that you know, the, um, the law could only produce death. It's Mara. And that the promise of God is what leads to life and, and a kind of sweetness thereof, which is very similar to the allegory Paul makes in Galatians 4 using, he doesn't use this particular story. He uses uh, Sarah and Hagar, right? But it's the same under, underlying principle there that we're saved through the promise, not through the law. I think this is I think this is definitely one of those books I mean it's there's what like 80, 80 something verses total you know you could sit down and read this in you know 15-20 minutes if you just sit down and read it um but I don't, I don't think it's one of, it's, you know, certainly not one of those books that I think a lot of people spend tons of time in, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't encounter, you might encounter be, Ruth being mentioned, see Ruth's example of faithfulness. But I mean, that's true. But if we sit down and actually read uh, just a hand, there's just a couple chapters, um, it's sort of this beautiful like microcosm of biblical themes and narratives. And it also, I think it's one of those texts that helps us read the rest of scripture. There, there are sort of certain smaller examples that you read them, you begin to see the patterns, you begin to see the sort of types at work in a very kind of short condensed way. That's uh, one of the reasons why I like Tobit so much is because I think it's one of those books that does that. Um, and it helps us better understand, you know, the context that surrounds it. it, helps us understand the Exodus. It helps us understand what's going on 
uh, in Judges. It helps us understand what's going on in Kings. And I think I think it's one of those little little appreciated texts. I, I think you're exactly right. It, it's read as a charming story, or you know, it has a happy ending. Uh, it's got the lovely example of a daughter-in-law and mother-in-law. So it's read on that level and enjoyed. It's a popular book. Um, my mother's mother was named Ruth, and lots of women of that generation were named Ruth. But it's also, as you said, a microcosm. Um, it's a, uh, a synecdoch or a, 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 a summary in miniature of the whole well, yeah, Eucharistic theology, Christology, Christ in relation to the church, the law in relation to the gospel, um, the, the, the reversal of fortune, which is at the heart of scripture. Um, it's all there. Everything's there. I, and, and I tell people everything in the Bible's in Genesis, um, my favorite book. But but it, everything's also in Ruth, and um, so everything in Scripture is is in everything. Um, it, the book, the Bible, is a book about itself which is why it's difficult sometimes for people to pick up because it's a vast universe. But the more you learn about scripture, the easier it is to learn more about scripture. And um, Ruth is a great way to start. You know, Tobit would be um, because it's, it's an easily read book that's charming and delightful and happy. Um, but it also opens, opens up into everything else. Yeah, it's it's interesting too, and you know, lis listeners, if you are familiar with uh, sort of medieval exegesis, if you're familiar with the idea of sort of the senses of scripture, um, then you're probably not going to be surprised. But uh, if you aren't, maybe Father Wes, this is uh, you know, maybe we should do an episode on on the kind of four senses of scripture and kind of mm. dive into that a little bit. Um, but you'll kind of notice in a rather, you know, sort of non-systematic way, uh, we've kind of done that in this conversation. We kind of bounce around between those particular senses. You know, we're looking at the typological, we're looking at moral examples, we're looking at eschatological examples. Um, and those all sort of blend and co-inhere in each other as you read the text. So it's not this artificial separating of, well, this, this particular verse, we're going to read it first in its plain sense. Then we're going to read it this way. Then we're going to read it, you know. You can do that. But if you take the text as a whole, say if you take all 80 some odd verses of Ruth and you say, what's going on here? You actually find it's a very natural exercise when you are reading that text to sort of move in between those senses, to move very fluidly between looking at the relationship uh, with Christ and the church, looking at the harvest in an eschatological way, looking at this call to faithfulness as a moral obligation. And it, 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 it becomes a very kind of natural process. Uh, and I think maybe, maybe in a small way, um, when, we, when we do these sort of scriptural episodes, I think it's one of the fun things that we get to do is we get to sort of unpack an interesting story, a meaningful text, uh, something that we might be interested in, um, but also in a way that sort of helps your average reader who, who may feel overwhelmed or feel um, distant from the text. And hopefully we, we encourage people to, you know, pick it up and read Ruth. Sit, sit with it. T see where it moves you in how you understand a particular relationship. Because um, biblical exegesis does take skill, but it also takes practice, and you have to just be in the text to practice it. The Bible is the only story or the only book that tells its story really only when the reader becomes part of that story. 
you know, I mean, uh, most books you read and you're part of the story as an observer, but in the in the scriptures to really understand what's going on, you have to be in the story. You have to be immersed into the story. Um, and so scripture can be overwhelming, but it's actually, I think, more overwhelming to treat it as a sort of uh, purely historical, literal text, you know, because then you need to know the languages and then you need to know the cultural backgrounds and you have to do all this extra reading in order to be able to pick it up and actually understand what's going on. But if you read it as someone who's been immersed in the story by virtue of your baptism and membership in the church, then I, those other things can be helpful in terms of our literary, our, our literal reading of the text, but there's so much more that can be gleaned, no pun intended, from the text um, when when you're you're actually part of the unfolding story. And that's that that is one of the reasons why I do sort of appreciate a, a narrative approach to scripture, um, because that's something that we as human beings are very connected to. We tell stories, we think about stories, we read stories, we watch stories. And when we begin to understand the fact that we are enmeshed in this story, that it is an experience, it's an encounter, it becomes far less off-putting or distancing or dislocating. It becomes far more uh, engageable. We, 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 we can really jump in and uh, sort of engage in that process that we talked about with Father Borsma. Um, when we talked about his book, Pierced by Love, um, we can really begin that kind of process of, of doing what Origen said and chewing the scriptures. And, and the, certainly our Lord's storytelling uh, invites that. Um, I, I always say on, on when the prodigal son is, is the gospel, um, what we're invited to do, I think, in the story is to... Uh, not just to jump quickly to an allegorical interpretation, uh, but to see ourselves as every character in the story, or most characters in the story. So we're the resentful older brother, and we're the prodigal son, and you know maybe we're the maybe we're the lucky pigs in the far country. Um, and and then the story also is open-ended because we don't know what's going to happen there's the father's appeal at the end of the at the end of the text but we don't know what the what the younger son well we don't know what the older brother will do whether he will come into the party or not we don't know whether the younger son is going to wander off again because that's the sort of thing we would do uh, we'd, we'd come back and and uh enjoy the party and uh, hang out for a while, and then we would, um, then we'd wander off again. So um, it's um, it's open ended, so, and that's one reason the the parables are um, so uh, compelling. Um, you know, Jesus didn't come and hand us the Nicene Creed and a little book of moral theology and say, that, "Guys, this is this is what you need to know." Here, here are the basic doctrines. Here are the here are the moral rules, and uh, I'll I'll be back sometime. Um, instead, he came and told stories, and the stories are much. The stories need to be corrected by the creeds and by the moral teaching, uh, so that they're not completely open. But the creeds and the moral teaching need to be opened up by the stories and the parables uh, or they become desiccated and and uh, dead um, or at least could uh, become that way so um, jesus taught with stories therefore i think we're supposed to pay attention to the stories and the narrative approach is not just one of many it is one of many but but it's also the, the one that that uh, our lord himself seemed to favor. Hmm. There is one character we haven't covered yet who I would uh -oh. be interested in talking about. It's the it's the closer kinsman redeemer. Because yeah, Boaz is uh, yeah. not the first one. 
Yeah. And yeah. and I think there's some openness here. This is exactly, I think, um, in other words, if if we read it in on the sort of tropological level, there's this call to faithfulness on our end, and we're presented with Boaz as a model of faithfulness and Ruth as a model of faithfulness. But then this this unnamed kinsman redeem or a kinsman not redeemer, um he he can't he doesn't want to do it because he says it'll impair his own inheritance which to me reads very much like the parable of the wedding feast or of the of the feast where the, he sends the invitation out and the, the, the guy just bought new um horses and he can't come and the other guy just got married and he can't come and they come up with all these sort of excuses as to why they can't come to the feast um but i think it it, it forces us to place ourselves in the center and kind of ask which direction will we go? Yeah, I mean, if Boaz is is the Christ uh, figure, then who is the uh, who is the closer un, the unnamed closer kinsman? Uh, that's a, a very interesting question, um, and I think I think what you were saying, uh, Father Walker, is correct. This this is inviting us to to think of uh, excuses that are made to uh, to avoid the marriage. And we are talking about really a marriage being avoided um, before the other marriage can be um, infected. So, um, yeah, it's he, he's an interesting, interesting character. Um, yeah, it's I mean it's one of those examples I think in scripture where someone is presented with a choice, right? The I don't I don't remember where I got this from. Um, but I think it's a handy way of kind of understanding the narrative of scripture is that it's God is looking for people who are willing to work with him. You know, at a very basic level, everything in scripture is God looking for someone to work with him. Say yes. And so we have this example where, you know, Ruth has the possible outlet of this other kinsman and it's sort of God presenting this person with a choice. Are you willing to say yes and to take what what comes? It may not be the most convenient thing for you. It may not be what you planned. It may not be any of these things. But are you willing to say yes, make a step sort of in faithfulness, take that leap of faith um, and and see what happens? And then there's blessings that come with that if you do say yes. Um where we see obviously with our lady, we see her her yes being the the sort of undoing of of Eve's sort of unfaithfulness. So I think this is one of those really interesting examples where we have it very clearly presented to us. There are two figures. One says no, one says yes. And through the one that says yes, you see God working out the the sort of economy of salvation and, and faithfulness and blessing follows. There's the old uh Jewish tradition that Abraham wasn't the first one who was called, that that others had been called and said no, which yeah. you know, they they were special not because God didn't call them because they were special. They became special because they were called, because they responded. I, I'm happy to report that once at the very beginning of my ministry and once uh, last year, um, I had a wedding on a Saturday, and the next. The next day was the uh, parable of the, the wedding guests. And of course, the last excuse is I can't come because I have married me a wife. And in, on both of those occasions, the, the, the bride and groom were at Sunday mass. Um, and of course, they got extra, extra points. Um, so, yeah. Well, just a little personal anecdote. Love it. Second case, the the bride the bride's father was a priest, so I don't maybe she didn't have a lot of choice, but <laughs> she did have choice. In fact, she sang in the choir, and her husband served at the altar. So good for them. It's not That's a bad it. way to start your marriage. Not a, no, indeed, and and but and both sets of parents were were there at mass with them. So yeah, they they got off to a good start. I think that, yeah, that's a good way to do it. Yeah. Is there, are there any other kind of themes or, or characters or things we need to draw out of the text that we haven't already? 
I've got, I've gone through my notes. Um, Father, you wanted to talk about their uh, kind of weird uh, wedding, pre-wedding activities. Oh yeah, just be controversial. You know, let's 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 we can jump into that. Um, Uncovering feet and stuff. Yeah, so it's an interesting it's an interesting example. You know, I I, I sometimes tell people that you know uh, the Bible is not rated PG. You know, there's a lot in scripture that deals with the whole experience of human human beings. And so you you encounter some interesting moments, um, be they violence or, uh, you know, sexual encounters, things like that. It happens. Sometimes both at the same time. Exactly. Uh, and there there is an interesting piece in the in the particular this particular story where once um ruth and naomi have have come to boaz and come to 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 bethlehem that naomi sends ruth to where boaz is sleeping and directs her to uncover his feet and to lie down and you know sort of wait to see what happens um which ruth does do and um when boaz wakes up she tells him i am your handmaid spread your robe over your handmaid uh and you will be you know i think we can use the the phrase i think it's really helpful my kinsman redeemer right she's basically saying i need you to do this um but it's really interesting when you look at sort of the the sort of context of this of uncovering feet and having uh, a blanket or a stole sort of placed over you has sexual connotations. Um, and Ruth and Boaz at this point, they're not married. Um, this is sort of the beginning of their betrothal. This is the kind of first steps towards that. Um, but there's, of... there's, still, there's still that closer kinsman. So it wouldn't have been appropriate for them yet to be um assume that they're going to be uh married it, that's still an open question in the story mm -hmm. yeah. uh and there's a, a little bit also earlier um the young men uh, boaz's workers are told not not to touch or no he he says to her the young men won't nobody will bother you or touch you so uh he's, he's being um sexually protective of her earlier um yeah i i don't know i i think um it would be interesting to um talk to other kinds of interpreters people may be a little more attuned to the uh era and the culture to see whether the this is just a gentle possibility being opened um or whether it's it's more clearly implying um um hanky panky or, or something um um father creighton's trying to get get people in trouble here but in well, some ways know. well in some ways i think the kind of vagueness of it is is probably part of the telling yeah. the story i mean we do this you know in movies and stuff where we cut away from something and it's kind of up to you the viewer to figure out what's going on there so it's probably yeah. a similar literary device i i have read a number of commentaries that hint that it's it's possible but also that in their minds there wasn't always such a clean distinction like marriage wasn't quite that they didn't view marriage quite the same way that we did in terms of it was a particular ceremony that happened and then everyone was you know every everything changed after that but that there's this kind of slow build up i mean we even see it in the story of joseph and mary right they're betrothed there's a kind of closeness to betrothal that we don't quite always grasp as modern readers of the text so their their customs well, certainly were a little different and we can appreciate that i think and appreciate the literary devices that the storyteller is using without being too scandalous one way or the other no, yeah. so it's an interesting part of the story but i'm, I'm happy to uh to not try to interpret it too much <laughs> no i think i think ultimately that's that's the the direction to go i just know that this particular 
passage is, uh, I've seen some recent scholarship on it that's become sort of, um, you know, talked about where uh, some are arguing that this is an example of sort of quote unquote premarital sex. Um, There's, there are a lot of subtle, you know, like the uncovering of feet or something like uh, we don't think about this in the in the story of samson where when she cuts his hair that the hair was a symbol of male virility so she the woman who was dominated by samson becomes the one who dominates him um which fits in with a lot of the themes of judges of these kind of subversive um actions uh jael driving the pin the tent peg through the man's head has some sort of phallic imagery as well but the big point is uh listeners you cannot take what we're talking about now and say that you know you can then do whatever you want because Ruth and and Boaz, like the Archbishop said, had hanky maybe had hanky panky before they got married. That's it's not yeah. an excuse. No, we're not told that they did. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. No, we're not told they did, and it's not prescriptive even if they did. No, no excuse. Yeah, so like I not, like not I mentioned, go to the threshing floor, listeners. You know, not, like I mentioned, kind of uh, you know as a prelude to this yeah you know, there's a lot in scripture that is you know maybe an example for for us not to do um but just because it's there doesn't mean it's prescriptive that we need to sort of follow that particular mode um no one's telling anybody to go out and you know slaughter a whole city or anything like that just because it's in the bible or, or to, to chop up the, the woman into 12 parts and mail her to 12 tribes right right or whatever yeah but it's a good reminder that the scriptures are recording events that happened in time with human beings and that and all the kind of messiness that human beings come with so it's it's a good reminder that, it, that those things are in there um they can kind of uh rest us from a place of reading kind of passively or or apathetically you know they can they can certainly make things a little more interesting yeah, I mean, Genesis is a soap opera, and if you can't interest people in Genesis, then, you know, golly, uh, you're, you're not doing a very good job because it, everything's in there. Sibling rivalry, jealousy, incest, murder, um, it's all there. It's like a Flannery O'Connor novel. Yeah, yeah, even, even more, even more uh, outrageous. Well, maybe we'll have to, when we do um, the Sacramentalist Go Scriptural Part 3, maybe we could have you back and we could do uh, a couple stories from the book of Genesis. Because Genesis is my favorite Old Testament book as well. My thesis, my master's oh, yeah. divinity thesis was on Hagar and Ishmael. Uh, yeah, that, it's, it's what, what a wonderful book. I think <clears> I did a study of it in the parish, which I think lasted three and a half years. Uh, we, we had a great time with it. We've been at Matthew for two years. We're we're just finishing up chapter ten. Wow, Matthew's a Matthew's a, another great book. That's probably my favorite yeah. gospel, synoptic gospel. Favorite synoptic gospel. We'll say that. Well, very good. Well, Bishop, as always, we are so thrilled to have you, and this has been super fun to get to talk about this. I suppose before we let you go, we have to ask you what you're into these days. Well, what I'm going to be into in about an hour is, is bridge. Um, got a couple days of bridge here, so I'll, I'll enjoy that. Um, I, I, for the first time in my life, acquired in January a cell phone. Um, I avoided it as long as I could. I was kind of bullied into it by family members for security on long drives. But also, uh, once Apple stopped supporting iPods, I couldn't get uh, audiobooks or music, new music. And uh, so I don't use the cell phone as a phone much, and only 10 people have the number. But uh, I use it to, to uh, get music and, and audiobooks once again. So I'm sort of, and also, I mean, like I can listen to the uh, sacramentalist while I'm shaving in the morning. Uh, so yeah, what a what a great and efficient use of, of time. Um, so I'm into that. I uh, continue to, to be a um, avid reader and listener to um, um, Anthony Trollope and and, the, and then uh, some later 
later novelist. I've been listening to a guy named uh, uh, William John Locke, who was, I think, died in the 30s. And some of his novels are, are very enjoyable. So, excellent. iPhone books. Love it. Father had, a Creighton, terrible, you... had a terrible day of bridge yesterday. So, you have to pray that everything goes better today. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Will do. Okay. Father Creighton, what are you into these days? What am I into? Um, how about I how about I throw in something only our fellow pin nerds are gonna like? Yes. Um so I have uh, I like Noodlers Inc. If you like fountain pens, you've probably heard of Noodlers. Um there it's it's a great ink. Uh but I have purchased and I've been using I think my new favorite Noodlers Inc. And it's called Sequoia Green lovely and it's a lovely rich green color and i have been i filled all my pins with it <laughs> i believe uh that that makes you very uh sort of progressive because um i think noodlers got canceled last year oh, no. at some point for one of their i don't i don't remember if it was maybe apache sunset or some one of their names was politically incorrect and so they got canceled but father creighton is is a is a very regressive man who will stand up for the canceled i think there's well there's nothing problematic with sequoia green i don't think that's the problem no um i like noodlers as well they make great ink i like their blue that's named after the massachusetts uh regiment from the civil war i forgot what it's called but i have that one classic so, um, yeah, it's a, it's quite, it's quite nice. I've enjoyed using it. It's a small thing and it's one of the little pleasures in life. So I, I think it's father, father Creighton has been in the deep South too long because I thought he was talking about PIN nerds. It must be uh, a game or something. What is it? But pen, pen. We just love fountain here. I, I have a sister named Penelope and. My southern friends call it Penny. Yep. Penny. Hen nerds. All right. There you go. Um yeah, it's it's uh it's a it's a great ink. It's a lot of fun. Father Wes, what are you into? Uh I have to say two things. Uh the first is Justin Martyr's apologies and his exhortation to the Greeks. We've been reading that with the uh students from St. John's College here in Annapolis. We have recently started a campus ministry there, a reading group, and uh, have really been enjoying going through some of those texts with them. It's fun to go through them with them because they've read or are reading Homer, Sophocles, Plato. And so to then read Justin Martyr's engagement with those sources with the Johnnies is really a fun thing to do. So there's that. That's kind of the boring, you know, reading one. The other one is a game called Diplomacy. I've just played it for the first time recently. I've, I know, I've always known I would like it, but um, got a couple of people from my church together and we spent a whole Saturday playing this game, Diplomacy. Bishop, have you ever played Diplomacy? Do you know this? I never have. Well, it, I, I lived it a little bit maybe, but... <laughs> that's true. It's like, it's like risk, but there's no luck involved. So you, the turns last about 30 minutes each and you have to go talk to the other players to make arrangements for various movements of troops and attacks that you'll make. And at the, at the end of the time, everybody submits orders that they write by hand to the, to the person who's kind of running the game. And then, so you can, you can very easily betray people. Um, and so I'm, I'm ashamed to admit as a parish priest that I, I betrayed one of my parishioners multiple times in the game. <laughs> so I don't know if she'll ever be able to trust me again. <laughs> But it was such a blast. We had a great time. I was Italy, so I also included uh, papal decrees at the end of all my orders, you know, um, as as various popes from history. So it was great. So yes, diplomacy, great game. Takes a long time, but uh, it was really. You could fun. also poison people, I guess, if you were Italy. You could be. That's uh, right. Lucretia Borgia. Exactly. Exactly. So what a great game. Would love to play. Should bring it to Synod, maybe, Father Creighton, and we could all play a game of diplomacy. That would be fun. Uh, there's going to be enough of that going on, I'm sure. That's true. The Archbishop can attest. 
Yes, yes. Well, my goal is to get Archbishop Haverlin to write a log flume at the uh, at the the synod next week. It's in Orlando, Florida. So I will be there for that if it happens. Excellent. Well, Bishop, thank you so much for being here with us today. It, it's always a pleasure to have you. My pleasure. Uh, enjoyable conversation. And uh, I guess Father Creighton's going to read a prayer from a book. That he had, if he hasn't memorized it yet, of course, he should have memorized it when he was about 12, but apparently he didn't. So let's hear, read, learn, mark, and inwardly digest. Thank you, Archbishop. Let us pray. <laughs> Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.